now as we uh, look at this passage, what can possibly something written a few thousand years back from in a different culture, different context have to say to us? That's what we ask you for wisdom on. We know it's your word to us today. What does that look like for us? So speak, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'm not going to ask, how are you doing? I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. It's similar, but it's more nuanced. It's probably a bit deeper. It's a bit unusual. You probably don't ask it in the pub or as you're walking the dog in the park and you meet with a friend. But how, not how you do, not how are you, not how you're doing. How is your heart? It's a bit different, isn't it? How, how is your heart this morning? What I like about uh, St. Andrews is that we're not into performance and amazing polish. That doesn't mean that we don't believe in doing things well, but I, I, I like that we're into being real with each other, authentic faith, sharing, not superficial. I can't stand superficial. Anyone, anyone love superficial here? It's not very attractive, is it? Oh, okay, we've got one. Um, so I'm going to ask you right now, um, if a word comes to you right now, the state of your heart, be honest with it. I mean, it could be full. Your heart could be full, but uh, it could be something else. Sh- shout me out. How is your heart? Praise and thanksgiving. Great. Healed in Jesus' name. Great. Been forgiven a lot. He who's been forgiven a lot loves a lot. Yeah, I was talking. Conflicted. Conflicted. Yeah. Very legitimate emotion. I share that. Tired. Yeah, let's be honest. Knackered. Is that a word you can say in church? Broken? Sore? Weak? Disillusioned? Weary? Disappointed? Grateful? And there'll be, there'll be different ones for me. I mean, I came back three weeks ago from Burundi. Most of you know that that's where we spent 20 years, and uh, that's my field of operation, if you like. And uh, broken, looking at the unbelievable need. Um, grateful that we are, we are so blessed. Stirred. Because we're here for a purpose, and he wants to use us. Overwhelmed, overwhelmed by our own circumstances, let alone Ukraine and Yemen and the Central African Republic that you might not even have heard about, but that's one close to my heart. And there's so much heaviness, grieving still at the loss of a loved one. There's, there's, there's a whole load of stuff going on, isn't there? And this sermon series, I hope you've tracked with it, the, the theme has been about the heart. And we've looked, been looking at uh, the book of First Samuel. And from a few weeks ago, we had a willing heart. Then we looked at the heart of worship, and we looked at a grateful heart. And today's is, which no one came up with, and I wouldn't expect us to in a sense, because it's quite a strange word to use, but a wayward heart. So that's what we're looking at now. And the context is from chapter 7 of Samuel, is that um, God had just won a battle for the Israelites And he just shown his faithfulness, as he repeatedly does. But what happens in this passage? And that is that they ask for a king. A king other than 
God himself. And let's just look at it. If you've got your Bibles open from, from verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons, his, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. Now, Samuel was a, a, a great man. He was the, the, the greatest judge. He, he, the Bible is, is almost uniformly positive about him. He was so wise. He was so used of God. He heard God's voice. He relayed it faithfully. He didn't compromise. He did so much good. This is his darkest hour. Whether it was nepotism, I don't think so. Whether he was blinded by loyalty, whether, whether it was an assumption that his sons would take over, but it was such a strategic position and it was such a bad decision, wasn't it? Because what's it say in verse three? His sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. It was a shock of a decision and the Israelite elders were totally legitimate, weren't they? Verse 4, they gathered together and they came to Samuel and they said to him, look, you're, you're old, your sons, they don't, listen, you might have noticed, they don't follow your ways. So appoint for us, please, a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And basically it's verse 5 and verse 20. So verse 5, it says, such as all the other nations have. And then verse 20, it says, then we will be like the other nations. Those are the sort of key lines from the passage, if you like. But before we move on from Samuel, I also wanted to do a little exercise now in terms of us praying for each other as a community. Because um, well, it's been, it's been quite a big week for me. We had a leaders gathering here on, on Friday. There's about 50, 60 of us here listening to a wonderful couple uh, in their pursuit of Jesus. And, uh, and the, the, the bloke um, who's leading it sort of prophesied over me. But then afterwards, a lady came and, and, and prayed and prophesied again uh, about our children. And my children, I've got three children, and uh, we don't over divulge, but we do want to be real, don't we? And they weren't like Joel and uh, Abijah. They, they, they're, not, they're not accepting bribes and perverting justice, you know, because that, that's not their station in life. But they're not right now full on with zeal for the Lord by any stretch. And that grieves my heart deeply. So how's your heart, Simon? It's full of gratitude because I'm unbelievably blessed. I've got a great wife. I've got health. I've got enough money in the bank uh, to, to look after and give some away. Um, I've got a fulfilling ministry, but it's heavy because my greatest desire as a father is to see my children walking in his ways. And I should think Samuel's heart was heavy as well. I don't think he could deceive himself. And so just on that, it's not the central part of this passage, but I know because we know each other, and some of us, we don't know each other that well. There's loads of pain over uh, prodigals and people that aren't following Jesus right now. So as a community together, again, we're small and we're real enough to do that, aren't we? Think right now. It doesn't take you long, does it? And I invite us together to bring those names before God right now. So, call it, And it doesn't have to be if some of us don't have children. It could be a sibling. It could be your parents that you're still longing to, to come to Jesus. It could be whoever, someone you care deeply about. But right now, why don't we literally name them up as a community, in faith, in unity together, and say, Lord, come, break through into their circumstances. I've been challenged this week to contend for my kids. That means going into their rooms when they're not there, not the whole time, but I'm like on my knees in their room saying, please, Lord, have mercy. 
And Malcolm helpfully challenged me. Uh, I think it was the same day. Yeah, just, you know, you've got to spend as much time as possible. Be intentional. I watched a fatherhood, a fatherhood uh, listen to as I was driving back from preaching yesterday. It was Derek Prince. And, you know, mighty man of faith has been used in a gazillion, not gazillion, millions, literally millions of lives. Uh, and he said, my biggest regret is not spending more time with my children. And that is a responsibility uh, we've got. And, and, and by the way, there's, there's no, if, if, if we feel it's too late, it's never too late. And in prophetic worship language, uh, not worship language, prophetic language, uh, God can restore the years the locusts have eaten. And we don't live under condemnation. The last thing we need from the front uh, from, 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 is religion, which is guilt. That's not what we're about. But right now, let's just lift up our loved ones. Go for it. Lord, I pray. Go on, go for it. I pray for Zach, Grace, and Josiah. Oh, God. I pray for Rebecca, please. Pray for Sean. I pray for James. Pray for Sarah and Kevin and Dulcie. Lord God, we cry out. Father, together we cry out to you for our loved ones, whether it's our uh, blood children or whether it's uh, nephews and nieces or, or cousins or siblings or parents. Lord, may your kingdom come and may we contend, may we feel that challenge to really dig deep and contend for their souls. And we agree on that. In Jesus' name, amen. So, yeah, that's, that's not the heart of what the passage is saying. But, you know, you obviously read Scripture through your uh, lens of experience. And so straight away as I'm looking at that passage, I'm thinking, Samuel, how is he feeling about his kids? And, I mean, he's so wise and so godly. And yet that was an area of his life that it was obviously a complete struggle. And so he appoints these judges. Listen, he, he appoints them as leaders. And the fact is that, when the elders came, I'm sure they wanted what was best for their community, but they were trying to force God's hand. God, 400 years previously, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he had said there will be a king to come. But we mustn't try to force his hands. And as we think about this concept of a, of a wayward heart, a wayward heart is essentially, I think we've all got a bit of waywardness in us, and we're constantly drifting, and we all need to be brought back to him. And often, I think we try to force God's hand. And often, it's a question of timing of what's going on in our lives, what we're asking and seeking him for. And he says, be patient and wait for me and seek my face. So in Deuteronomy 17, you are going to get a king. But listen, the motivation, that's what's wrong, isn't it? They wanted to be like all the other nations. And God is calling us to be set apart. That's what holy, holiness means, be set apart. He's saying, don't try to fit in. The Church of England is trying to fit in right now. And there's, in a sense, there's a battle that will be ongoing. There'll be constant compromise, and it'll, it'll, it'll carry on. And, uh, and, and the beauty of Jesus was that he was radically different. The biggest influence in my life was one of the cutest little people, my cute little mum. And she, what was beautiful about her is that she's totally different. It's, you know, you wouldn't, she wouldn't have a great CV of, you know, CEO or whatever, you know, but she's patient and kind and servant-hearted and going the extra mile and all those things, beautiful characteristics. Jesus was beautiful because he was so completely different. He called out hypocrisy. He hung out with losers. He touched the untouchable. He, he called out religious people that completely missed it. And may we not be those religious people that miss it and that judge and condemn and look down on others. No, let's get alongside and love and get our hands dirty and that sort of stuff. You know, in, in Judges chapter 8, Gideon, he was offered the throne of Israel and he turned it down. Why? 
He said, I will not rule over you, nor will my, any son of mine rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And that was the heart of all judges. And again, Samuel's a judge, and the timing just wasn't right. And they needed to wait for the fulfillment of that promise. So when he hears that request from the people, the motivation being all wrong, we just want to be like every other nation. So we want to assimilate. Uh, God says to him, look, listen. Listen to all that the people are saying, verse 7. It's, not, it's kind of God to say this. He, say, he says basically, Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting. They're rejecting me as king. Chapter 7, I'm just chaffing, save them from the Philistines. Why can't they settle for that? I'm so good, I'm so faithful, but they... But they want to just fit in. They want to do things the world ways. They want, ugh. So listen to them, Samuel, but, but give them a warning. Warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will rule over them will claim as his rights. And so Samuel, verse 10, told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. I won't read it all through, but Samuel faithfully relays the message of God to the people of God. And he says six times, he says, he will take the king that you're asking for. He's going to take. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your grain. He's going to take your flocks. He's going to take your fields. He's going to take all. He's a taker. All the way. Do you really want that? And thankfully, we follow a king who's not a taker. He's a giver, isn't he? Mark 10, 45 said, even the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for me. And it's almost prophetic, this, because they're rejecting God's lordship, God's kingship over them. And then bringing this into the New Testament, of course, likewise, Jesus' kingship was rejected, wasn't it, by the, by the people of God, they, the, the, by the, the Jews. They said, no, we have no king but Caesar. And so they get this warning, and then God says, give them their king. If that's what they want, they can have their king. And it's interesting as, as you track through, through uh, Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings and Chronicles, there's loads of kings, aren't there? There's loads. There's literally dozens of kings. And uh, I could be wrong on the exact number. This is what I got from, uh, from uh, some research. But there were 33 bad kings. And, and when they're bad kings, it said uh, Elah became king of Israel, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And Zimri, we've never heard these guys because they don't do very well and they don't last very long. Zimri became king, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And Ahizah became king, remember him? No. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And there were 33 bad kings, and there were five good kings. And we do remember them. In fact, we named one of our children after them. So that's Josiah, and Asa, and Hezekiah, and Jehoshaphat, and Jotham. And they all lived, well, they, they lived on average 16, 16 or 18 years longer than the bad kings. So, you know, following God's ways is the best way, isn't it? Because he has wired us. He knows what's best for us. And we should submit to his lordship. How is your heart? Let's get back to that question. And, you know, it might be, we, I, I loved it because we, we started with great positive ones. But we also got to the, the tougher ones, didn't we? And we've got a mixture amongst us of, of full hearts and damaged hearts and grateful hearts and frustrated hearts and broken hearts. Samuel Chadwick said, it's a wonder what God can do with a broken heart if he gets all the pieces. And my encouragement to you this morning is just to bring those broken pieces to him. Bring your heart, and no matter what state it's in, to him. Because there's a promise in Scripture, is that you'll seek him and find him if you seek him with 
all your heart. That's a promise. That's worth learning. That's uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 13. You will seek him and find him if you seek him with all your heart. And I don't know the state of your heart, but God knows the state of your heart. And he says, trust me. And J.C. Rao said, until we give God our heart, we give him nothing at all. And some of our pain is in, comes from the outside, and some of, our, some of it might be self-inflicted by us holding back in our waywardness, whilst bargaining with God and saying, I'll do this if you do that for me. And he says, don't bargain with him. In fact, if I quote C.S. Lewis, he says, God can't bless us until he has us. And when we try to keep areas of our life that are our own, they're areas of death. And in love, he claims all. There's no bargaining with him. And in our compartmentalized faith, because I think we all do it, I'll, I'll do it, I'll do this, Lord, if you give me a husband, or if you pay the bills, or if you guarantee uh, a good outcome, or whatever, and he says, no, 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 don't hold up, don't, don't, what, don't bargain, don't bargain, just trust me, I'm a good God, seek first my kingdom. Jesus said that, didn't he? Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all the rest will be added to you. And I love the, the challenges that we get from the persecuted church. And I came across uh, this week, afresh, I had, I'd heard it years ago, but it's a story, you know, Russia, uh, so much heavy stuff. And you, you know, we pray for the Russians, don't we, as the Ukrainians, they're all precious people made in his image. And this was in the, under the Soviet Union, so going back um, to the 50s. And this was a guy called Dmitry, and he was a, he was a factory worker, but he was also uh, a closet clandestine church planter. And he had his house church as a factory worker, and it had sort of ballooned, if you like, to 150 people. And he was busted, and he was sent to Siberia, a thousand miles away, to a criminal facility of 1,500 people. And as far as he knew, he was the only follower of Jesus in that prison. And every morning, he would get up uh, with the other prisoners, and he would face the east, and he would raise his hands to God, and he would sing. He would declare the lordship of God over his life, over all of the prisoners, over his land. And the other prisoners would <laughs> rattle their cages and try to chuck feces at him around, the, you know, and he just got serial abuse for years and years. For 17 years, he was in that prison. He was told he just needed to sign a piece of paper recanting his faith. He'd be out. Could you imagine that? 17 years, knowing that sign that and you're out. And he resisted because, because he had a heart after God. And then eventually he was broken. And how was he broken? He was told that his wife had died and his two boys were being left out on the street. And at that point, can you imagine it? He said, all right, I'll sign. And then that evening, a thousand miles away, his wife, who was not dead, and his, his boys, they, in the spirit, knew something really heavy was going on. And they started praying, praying, praying for, for their father in, a, in an unusually fervent way. A thousand miles away, he is in the prison. And by the spirit, he is enabled to hear the prayers of his wife and children. And he knows that they're still alive. And so when they came in the morning with a piece of paper for him to recant, he said, no, I'm not recanting. They're still alive. Love that. And so... They were going to execute him. And uh, as they yanked him out of his cell to lead him to his execution, all those prisoners started 
singing in unison a praise and worship hymn that he'd sung every morning, declaring the greatness and the glory of God. And the glory of God came on those guards, and they were terrified. And they said to Dimitri, who are you? And he looked them right in the eyes, and he said, I'm a son of the living God, and his name is Jesus Christ. Love that. And he was released shortly afterwards, and one of his sons ended up being the prison chaplain in that prison. I love those stories. They're so inspiring. And they set a bar of discipleship so high, don't we? And because we haven't suffered overt persecution in this land like that, it's hard for us to relate to it. But, you know, whether it's persecution or just general trials and suffering, I think it's coming. And we need to be ready. And you see, we need to recognize that we march to the beat of a different drum. Amen? This is not our home. As Peter wrote in his epistles, we are aliens and strangers on earth. Some of us, we're making ourselves too comfortable. And worldly kings and worldly regimes, they have different allegiances. And Jesus is calling you this morning afresh with whatever waywardness we're experiencing to put a marker in the ground and say, I'm going to stand for the king. And it will be costly. And we want to see fruit here. I want to see fruit here, desperate to see fruit here. Some of you have been at it decades praying for this part here. I've only been praying for Fox Hill for four years, but I'm passionate about this place. And David Wilkinson said, you can endure a lot of suffering when your heart is set on purpose. But if your heart is set on comfort, or if you have a wayward heart, you cannot endure any suffering at all. And the challenge, I think, for us in the Western world is that we are the most cosseted generation in the history of humanity. And that's we corporately. Some of you might not be. Some of you might have had a hell of a time. But in general, my parents were born in 1946. And that is about the best year in the history of humanity, I reckon, to have been born in. You know, all they've experienced is the baby boom and, and comfort and, and they've, you know, done wealth in life and, 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 and no war for them. And, and, and so the corollary of the blessing of all that is that we are the least resilient generation in the history of humanity. I mean, Ukrainians are pretty resilient, aren't they? And they're developing it further right now. And Burundians are unbelievably resilient because they go through a hell of a time as their norm. The Hunger Games, that film, when I watched that, that's Burundi. And, and so we need to be... Uh, this, this, this is a message of comfort and challenge. And I want to... When I say, how is your heart? You know, my heart is hungry and it's broken, and it's passionate, and, and it's a whole range of things. And that's all well and good. And I want us to afresh see this morning and focus on our patch. Our patch is here. It's set 974 houses, as well as your street. So for me, there's 85 houses in my street, and every day I pray a blessing outside. So Alan, Alan and Sandra here, they're on our street. I pray a blessing outside their house every day, walking around, every single house. Yeah, may they, may they walk in it. And, and, and so that is my patch. What is your patch? And then I was here in the dark this morning praying, and I was praying for revival in Fox Hill. And at some stage, it's going to happen. At some stage, it is going to happen. Some of you, as I said, you've sown a lot longer than me. But a few years ago, I got the chance to go and preach in Lewis, in the Shetland Islands, you know, just off Scotland, northwest up there, a few miles, 15 miles off, off the coast up there. And I, I was so thrilled to go there because, because that was where one of the greatest moves of God had taken place on this island, on, 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 you know, in the UK. And it was in 1949 to 1952. And, and when we talk about our, our, our wayward heart, when we talk about how our heart is, the, the prayer that catalyzed that revival 
It was stunning. They were a bunch of largely old, old grannies. So again, if you're an old granny, be commissioned. There's still life in the old dog yet. We're still going strong, aren't we? There's, there's so much for us to do in the spirit as our bodies maybe fail us. But they were in this one prayer meeting in a barn, there were seven men, two old ladies, and they had decided to, to not stop praying until God visited them in a powerful way. And one night at a prayer meeting held in that barn, a young man, actually, in this case, it was a young man. He stood up, listen to this prayer. He's quoting from Psalm 24. He said, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hearts and a pure heart. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, which means who is pursuing God, who is seeking holiness, who wants to be used for him. And he shut his Bible and he said in Gaelic, I love the reality of this prayer. It seems to me just so much sentimental humbug to be praying as we are praying, to be waiting as we are waiting here, if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. And he asked God to reveal if his hands were clean or if his heart was pure. And that honest, gut-wrenching prayer, was, was the start of that revival. And, and, you know, I'm sharing these stories to stir faith because as they, weep, as they wait on God, an awesome, I quote, an awesome presence filled that balm. And Duncan Campbell, he was preaching at a conference in Bangor that I've had the chance to preach at, uh, which is the, called the Bangor Worldwide uh, Missionary Convention. And this didn't happen to me. Maybe, thank God, maybe not. But, but he was about to step up and preach. And the Spirit of God said, you need to go right now to Lewis. And so he said to his bloke, mate, I hope they had a, a backup plan. He said, I've, I've got to go. And he got on a boat, and he, as he arrived in Lewis, they were waiting for him because the Spirit of God had said he was coming. I love that. And I share from him. He said over 100 people were at a dance hall at a nightclub on the island. And they weren't thinking of God or eternity. They were there just to have a good time. When suddenly the power of God fell upon the dance, the music ceased. And in a matter of minutes, the hall was empty. They fled from the hall as a man fleeing from a plague and they made for the church. And they're now standing outside. Oh, yes, they saw lights in the church and that was a house of God. And they were going to go to it. And they went and men and women who'd gone to bed rose, dressed and made for the church. Another meeting said, suddenly the power of God fell upon the congregation. Of course, in Lewis, he said, culturally, as in other islands of the Hebrides, they stand to pray and they sit to sing. And now, picture it, he said, one side of the church threw their arms up like this. They threw their heads back and, and you would almost declare that they were in an epileptic fit, but they were not. Oh, I can't explain it. And the other side, they're slumped on the back of, of, of the chairs, but... Oh, but God, the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost moved. And those with their hands like that stayed, stayed like that for two hours. Now, you try to remain like that in that position with your hands up for a few minutes, you'll find it hard. You, but you, you would break their hands before you could take them down. Now, I can't explain it. This is what happened. But the most remarkable thing that night was what took place in a village seven miles away from the church. There wasn't a single person from that village in the church, not one single person. But seven miles away, the power of God swept through the village, swept through the village. And I know it to be a fact, there wasn't a single house in the village that didn't have a soul saved in it. Now, as I'm telling these stories, I'm saying, Lord, do that on Hawthorne Grove. Do that on Down Avenue. Do that on Queens Drive. Do that in Dunster House. Do that in Selworthy House. Do that in, in Fox Hill House. Do that down Fox Hill. Do that on Queens Drive. Do it on Axbridge Road. Do it on Stoke Road. Do it uh, on Porlock Road. Do it on Quantox. Do it on Drake. Do it on Mir. Do it on Oak Hill Road. Do it, Lord. How desperate are you? A clean heart, uh, clean hands, pure heart. That's what he wants from us. 
bring it on. You know, Campbell, he came for 10 days. He stayed for two years. Another story, he said a, a schoolmaster that night was looking over his papers on the mainland, 15 miles from the island, and suddenly he was gripped by the fear of the Lord. And he said to his wife, wife, I don't know what's going, well, I don't know what's drawing me to Barvis, but I must go. And she's like, but it's nearly 10 o'clock and you're thinking of going to Barvis. I know what's on your mind. I know that you're going out for a drink and you're, you're not leaving this house tonight. That's what she said to him. He was a hard drinker. And he said to his wife, I may be mistaken. Oh, I may be mistaken. But if I know anything at all about my heart, my own heart and mind, I say to you, now the drink will never again cross my lips. And she said, oh, well, John, if that's on your mind, you go to Barvas. Excuse the accent. And he got someone to take him to the ferry, someone to ferry him in a cross. And this is quoting Duncan Campbell again. He said, and I was conducting a meeting in a farmhouse at midnight. And this schoolmaster came to the door and they made room for him. And in a matter of minutes, he was praising God for salvation. And that's a miracle. I mean, you can't explain it any other way. Brothers and sisters, are we up for this? Yes, a wayward heart. We've all got wayward hearts. So we're, off, we're often trying to compromise and fit in. Most of us, you know, most people who are in the crowd, they're lost in the crowd. And he's saying, give, I want to give you the spirit of Dimitri. I want you to be unashamed. I'm not ashamed of the, God, uh, of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. And we're, in a lot, we're playing a long-term game. We don't know when Jesus is going to come again. We do know he's coming. He's like, are you ready? Are you living ready? Are you, are you focusing on what really matters? Those prayers, some of you, you have prayed for decades. He is faithful. He is answering. He is going to answer. There's a certain type of bamboo in Asia which grows to prodigious heights. But for the first five years, those farmers that plant that seed underground, they know that it will not even break through the surface. Now, if they didn't know that, Within a short space of time, they just dig up and plant something more obviously fruitful. But what happens is that once, after five years of sowing, uh, of watering, and, and leaving it to its natural cycle, suddenly these shoots break through, and then it grows to prodigious feet, sometimes 60 feet in six weeks. And I love that picture. That encourages me because, indeed, as I've prayed for my sister for the last 30 years, no, she's, yeah, 30 years, and you've prayed for, some of you oldies, you know, you've prayed for your prodigal.